Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. I hope that you've been able to kind of keep everything in your mind with this book. We've had plenty of interruptions with the preaching through the series on the book of Galatians. And in fact, we're going to have another interruption because my wife and I are going to be away, and then when we come back, We're going to be doing our packet outreach in the afternoon, and that will go on for six weeks. So we will not be coming back to this book until possibly November. And by the time November runs around, I'll be thinking about a Christmas series. (laughs) And so there might be a little interruption for that, but we'll see how the Lord leads. But just to let you know, it is critical that we carry in our vessel what we've already learned because God is building on that in our spirit. So Colossians, Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, we are going to encounter something that you may not think would ever happen, and that is one apostle confronting another apostle. This is exactly what's going to happen here in these verses. Galatians 2 verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Now, we're not quite sure in this passage where Paul's rebuke ends and commentary on that begins, but I'm going to end it here in verse 14. Why, if you being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? When we think about the mystery of Christ, and we think about that mystery, that eternal purpose, which is the summing up of how many things all things in Christ, to turn around and say that God is summing up all things in Christ plus the law is diametrically and directly opposed to God's eternal purpose. Everything is to be summed up in Him alone both in His work, in His person, 
in our justification, in our sanctification, in our glorification. It's all being summed up in who? Christ, Christ not Christ plus anything. Do we understand that? That truth is our glory. And the Judaizers were coming into the churches of the Galatian area and saying, now, Paul didn't give you the whole gospel. He didn't give you the whole truth. And the reason why he didn't give you the whole truth is because he knew that you really wouldn't go for that. But we're giving you the whole truth. We're giving you the whole truth as if Paul would give you that truth. And that truth is yes, Christ is the Messiah. But to be a part of the people of God, that is not enough. It's not merely faith in the Messiah, faith in Christ. It's faith in Christ plus the keeping of the, the, keeping of the law. And Paul announces an anathema to that. He says, even if we, he includes himself, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As I have said before, so say I again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. That is pretty strong language. And it is a language that people today really bristle at. They really don't see the Lord as being that type of Lord. But folks, anything that is directly opposed to the eternal will and purposes of God is anathema. And this is anathema. Christ plus the law. In fact, it was no different than what Paul was doing prior to his conversion. He wasn't doing Christ plus the law before his conversion. He was trying to keep the law and he also believed in a coming coming Messiah. Here the Messiah has already come, and so the Judaizers are saying, no, you need to believe in the Messiah. He's already come. His name is Jesus. But if you're really going to be considered part of the people of God, you've got to keep the Mosaic Law. <coughs> that is anathema. And Paul directly goes into... <coughs> this situation approving his credibility and his independency that would prove the fact, if you look in chapter 1 and verse 11, he says, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of who? Of Jesus Christ. And he immediately shows his relationship to the early church. The early church was not, as it were, his mentor. I'm sure he learned some fundamental things from the church, but he was not there very long before he was sent off into Arabia. He was also independent of the apostles, the eleven. 
He saw Peter of the other apostles. He saw James, and we don't know how long, but he, he was only in that arena for some 15 days. And then he's off again, right? He was not mentored by them. He was not taught by them the gospel. And in his relationship to the churches of Judea, he says that he was unknown to them by face. But they were aware of him because they kept hearing, chapter 1, verse 23, that he once persecuted us, but now he's preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Surely, if there was anybody you would praise God for the glory of His grace, it's the grace that God showed to this man named Saul. And He also showed in Galatians chapter 2 of His independency of the church at Jerusalem. In fact, it was some 14 late years later that Paul went back again to the church at Jerusalem And he didn't go back there to gain their approval of his ministry. He went back there, the Bible says, by revelation. Jesus Christ himself told him to go. And as he went, he took along Titus and he took along Barnabas. And he presented before those 11 apostles, specifically Peter, James, and John the gospel that he was preaching. Again, not to gain their approval, but to make sure that the church at Jerusalem itself had not gone astray. Why do I say that? Because there were pseudo-brethren, false brethren, that had crept in by subtility into the church at Jerusalem who were teaching false teaching. They were saying this... that you must be circumcised and keep the Mosaic law in order to be saved. Paul calls them false brethren. And the end result of all of that meeting, as we saw the last time we were here in Galatians, is that neither Paul changed anything Neither Barnabas changed anything, nor was Titus compelled to be circumcised by the eleven, nor did Peter say, no, circumcision is part of saving grace. James did not communicate that. John did not communicate that. And then when the elders of the church came together, they did not communicate that, Acts chapter 15. Nor did the whole church agree to that. None of those people subjected themselves to the false brethren to compel either circumcising the Gentiles or urging them to keep the law. That's why Acts 15 is so important in your Bible. So that we know these things. And the church at Jerusalem, the whole church, issued an edict back to the Gentile churches 
And in that edict, there was no command for them to be circumcised. And there was no command in order for them to keep the Mosaic Law to be a part of the people of God. They just said, you know, the Mosaic Law is being preached. It's there, but you're not under any obligation. Why? Because Peter said, we believe just like they believe that in order to be saved, we're saved by faith in Christ alone. That's an amazing meeting. Sometime after that meeting, we don't know when this occurs. But sometime after that meeting in Jerusalem, you'll notice in verse 11, Cephas, or Peter, came down to the church in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas would have certainly have delivered that message from the church at Jerusalem and the elders and the apostles that were there. There were other witnesses that came from the church at Jerusalem that came down to be a second witness that yes, this was not made up in the way, this is exactly what happened. And they preached and taught to the church at Antioch. But sometime after that, and we don't know when, and we don't know why, but Peter came to that church. And there was a situation that occurred there in that church in which Paul had to confront Peter. Now Paul's not relating this to us just to prove that he was right. He was right. But he's relating this because evidently the Judaizers were saying that Peter had the preeminence over the other apostles and that they were coming from Peter and that what they were saying was a message approved by Peter. So Peter comes down to Antioch and we have this narrative that we have before us. Now folks, in this narrative, there are six groups of people that are active in this narrative. The first one, of course, is Paul. What do we know about this man, at least from the book of Galatians? Well, we know that the apostolic company acknowledged him to be an apostle to the uncircumcised. They gave their right hand of fellowship for this. And we know that Paul did not compel the Gentiles to submit to circumcision or to the requirements in the Mosaic Law. That's what we know about this man. He's there in this narrative. The second person that is predominant in this narrative is a man named Cephas or Peter. What do we know about this man? Well, we know that he was the apostle not to the uncircumcised, but to the, to the Jews, to the circumcised. That God's power worked through his preaching to reach those Jews. We have no idea on Peter's purpose for being in Antioch, but we do know this about Peter, 
that he, along with James and John, were regarded as pillars in the church at Jerusalem. Peter was a very, very influential, credible man. And folks, it's an easy conclusion to come to that Peter's apostleship reigned over the other apostles when we realize that it was Peter who made that great confession to Jesus Christ. And it was Peter to whom Christ Himself said that He had given the keys to that man. Now what do you use a key for? You're either locking something or you are unlocking something, right? Peter himself was given the keys. And so, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, God used Peter, who with the key opened up the door of the gospel of the resurrected Christ to the Jews and to those who had converted at the day of Pentecost. He was the one who stood up and lifted up his voice above all the other voices. And he preached that amazing message that Jesus Christ, God had made this Christ, this Jesus, both Lord and Christ. And that great multitude was pricked in their heart. And folks, we had, in this amazing, we had thousands Turn to Christ. I would say that's a pretty influential man, wouldn't you? But folks, not only did Paul did Peter have the key, he exercised the key for one last time in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, who was a Gentile, having seen in a vision. He sends his servants down to Joppa. And there's Peter. Peter sees a vision. And he comes to understand in that vision that when that, as it were, they didn't have doorbells, but as the doorbell rang, the Holy Spirit said to Peter, you go with those men. Those men were Gentile men. And all the way from Caesarea, Peter thought about that vision and he came to this conclusion that he was not to call anyone unclean. But that all who come to Christ by faith are acceptable to Him. What did Peter do in that house where Cornelius gathered his family and all of his servants and all who served him there and they were all there waiting to hear the message? Peter's got the what? He's got the key. And he's going to open that door. The door's already been opened to the Jews. There's only one other door left. He opens the door to the Gentiles. And he preaches the Gospel And in the midst of his preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on them just like it fell when? 
on Pentecost when it fell upon that believing church and those who heard that message. Would you call that amazing? Now folks, if a man has a ministry like that, that man has influence. Do you agree? And do you also not agree that it would be very easy to elevate him above the other apostles? Evidently, that's what was happening. Is there any organization today that elevates Peter today over the other apostles? It is the Roman church. The Roman Catholic church. And one of the reasons why they elevate him is because he has the keys. Misunderstanding what those keys are. So Paul is there. Peter is there. In chapter 2 and verse 12, the Bible says there were certain men from James who were there. Now again, we don't know why these men were there. We don't know when those men came. Evidently, they did not come when Peter came. But evidently, it must have been shortly thereafter. James is a pillar in the church at Jerusalem, is he not? And here are these men... evidently had been advised by James to go to Antioch. Why? We don't know. But folks, I gather from the way the text is worded that these certain men from James were believing Jews. And here's why I say that. Evidently, they were believing Jews who kept the dietary law voluntarily, knowing that one is not justified or sanctified by the keeping of that law. I'm reading a little bit in here, but the reason why I'm saying that is because in the book of Romans chapter 14, we do have this issue where we have certain people in the church who believe that they need to abstain from eating certain foods and others who think that you can eat everything and how to handle that. Everybody following me? So evidently, these are believing Jews and they are voluntarily keeping the Mosaic Law And secondly, the reason why I think they're believing Jews is because Paul does not call them false brethren. And folks, he didn't have any hesitancy in chapter 2 and verse 4 to talk about false brethren secretly brought into the church at Jerusalem, did he? He just called it, as they say down south, he just called it like it was. But he could have called the people false brethren, but he didn't. He just said certain men from what man? Certain men from James. So evidently, these are believing Jews. 
And also, Paul had just said that if any man preach any other gospel, he is to be anathema. And he doesn't pronounce that on these certain Jews from, from James, right? Okay, so I'm just going by, God knows how to word things by the particularity of the text to say these were probably believing Jews who voluntarily, they just voluntarily kept the Mosaic Law, specifically the dietary law, and they kept it for the Lord, and they kept it out of love. There's a fourth party here, and that is Gentiles. These were believers in the church in Antioch who had a Gentile heritage. So you had Gentiles there. Then you also had this. You had the rest of the Jews. So evidently, these were other believers in the church at Antioch, but what heritage were they from? They were from a Jewish heritage. So everybody got the scenario. I mean, we got a lot of people involved in this. You got Peter, you got Paul, you got certain men coming down from James, you got Gentiles, you got the rest of the Jews, and then you got another man, and that man's name is who? It's Barnabas. What do we know about Barnabas? Well, Barnabas was Paul's fellow co-worker. I think it would be safe to say that Paul and Barnabas were tight. Would you say that? They had suffered together. They had labored together. They had taught together. Barnabas had come with Paul to the church at Jerusalem and Barnabas had defended, now hear this, he had defended the truth that the Gentiles did not have to submit to the Mosaic Law. He debated with those in the church at Antioch when it came up, he and Paul did. He disputed with them. That's pretty strong language. And he also disputed with those in the church at Jerusalem who stated that the Gentiles must be circumcised and keep the Mosaic Law in order to be saved. Barnabas stood for the truth. That's a pretty predominant church fellowship we're about to enter into. Now what went on here? Well, evidently, Paul Barnabas were ministering there in the church in Antioch. Peter had come and they had, as a church, they had fellowshiped around a meal. It may have happened more than once, but there had been fellowship around a meal. We know about that, right? We know what it means to fellowship around a meal. That fellowship included both Jews and Gentiles. Barnabas partook of that meal. Peter partook of that meal. Paul partook of that meal. Peter fellowship with the Gentiles, even though the law forbid that. 
Peter ate with the Gentiles, although the law would have forbidden that. They're having fellowship in the bond of peace. Everybody following me? Then the church had visitors. Certain men from James came down to the church at Antioch who kept the requirements of the dietary law. Things begin to change in that church. Peter no longer ate with the Gentiles. So you kind of imagine we're all together. <clears throat> let's just let's just kind of think about it in our little situation here. We're all together, multi ethnicities. Here we are. We're fellowshipping. We're enjoying a good meal. We're talking about the good things of the Lord. Great joy and happiness is going on. <clears throat> we had some visitors. They say, well, <clears throat> you know, we don't want to partake of that meal. We're, we've got certain dietary scruples, so uh, we're going to go off in this little fellowship room over here, and we're going to eat our meal over there. And then all of a sudden, Peter gets up. And he doesn't eat in here anymore. He goes where? He goes in that other fellowship room. (coughs) And what Paul saw gradually, now when I say gradually, I don't mean over weeks, but what Paul saw gradually begin to happen is that Peter would no longer associate with the Gentiles. He would only associate with those in that other room. And what happened in that church was the rest of the Jews there in that church, they began to go and fellowship in that other fellowship room. So that eventually, the only thing left in the fellowship room is who? Gentiles. Gentiles. And if folks, it got to the place where at a fellowship meal, Paul watched Barnabas no longer eat with the Gentile believers and go over into that other room. Now they didn't have separate rooms but they would have had separate entities. Like a large, if you want to say a large room and you got a section over here where there's a bunch of tables and there's only Jews over there. And over here you got a, you got a bunch of tables and they're only who? They're only Gentiles and Paul. <laughs> Folks, I want, to, I want to ask you what you think about that. Would you call that a gospel issue? I'm not sure that most Christians today would see that as a gospel issue. 
But it is a gospel issue. Why is it a gospel issue? Folks, what what is happening in that situation? There is something that is being erected that had been torn down in Christ. What's going on? Ephesians 2.14 says the dividing wall was being erected again. Does everybody see that? So no longer is it one body of believing people in Christ. It's now Gentile body and Jewish body. You believe in the Messiah alone. We believe in the Messiah. And even though we're doing it voluntarily, it ends up erecting that wall back up. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Folks, that's why it's a gospel issue. Because that wall was torn down in Christ's death. The law that was contained in ordinances like that dietary law. Everybody see that? And Paul's been watching this. And finally, when Paul, I don't know, is when Barnabas went, but he calls it hypocrisy. Now this is fascinating. Can a man who is an apostle act in hypocrisy? He can. Now Peter was not a hypocrite. What I mean by that is his life and manner wasn't characterized by being a hypocrite. But he was acting in hypocrisy. Why so? Because he had eaten with Gentile people. He had said, we are one in Christ. And he was right. But now, in his behavior, he is saying something, please hear this, he's saying something different with his behavior than what he had previously taught and acted out. Everybody following me? Because you're not going to get you're not going to get the, the the conclusions unless you get that. And Paul stood up, and it says in verse fourteen that when I saw they, that included Barnabas, was not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas in the presence of who? How would you like to have been there at that fellowship meal? He stood up in the presence of all and he looked directly at the Apostle Peter. He didn't look at the certain men from James. He looked directly at the Apostle Peter and said, If you, Peter, 
being a Jew, lived like the Gentiles. And did he? In other words, he didn't keep the dietary law when he was with Gentile people. He fellowshiped with Gentile people. He did not consider believing Gentiles unclean people. If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, well, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, folks, how was he compelling people to live like Jews? By his behavior. Everybody following me? It wasn't by his doctrine or by his teaching. It was the behavior that was communicating something that was a gospel issue. Now folks, just to conclude this narrative before I give you three things that we can draw out of this. This situation proves that Paul was independent of Peter. Folks, if Paul was a follower of Peter, he he wouldn't have stood up in the presence of them all and rebuked his mentor. Right? He would have just followed Peter like the rest of them. But instead, he stands up publicly and he rebukes Peter. And he says, Peter, why are you doing this? I can't imagine. You know, Peter is a very sensitive man. I know that because when Jesus just looked at him, he broke down and wept bitterly. I can't imagine Peter's conviction. I can't imagine his thoughts. But we do know this. Peter agreed with Paul. How do I know that? Because in Peter's writing, he calls him a brother. And that he was profited by Paul's writings. You don't say that about your who. You don't say that about your enemy. And folks, that really speaks volumes to Peter's, if you want to call it this, to Peter's character. Peter was a bold man and he could stand up on the day of Pentecost and directly just confront the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and everybody. The same man humbled himself when a fellow believer rebuked him about his behavior. He didn't say, oh, you're trying to be legalistic. Oh, you're just trying to get your way. Oh, you just want to be the head apostle. He submitted himself to that truth that was preached through the Apostle Paul. Now folks, that concludes the fact that Paul was both credible and independent of the church at Jerusalem, of Peter himself, of the other eleven apostles, of the churches at Judea, of the early church. He was given the gospel by revelation. 
And folks, you and I know that part of that revelation was the mystery. And Paul preached that mystery. Now folks, there are a lot of things that we can draw out of this. But I wrote down three that I hope will be helpful for us. Number one, prominent believers. And what I mean by that is people who have influence. People of whom other believers look up to as pillars. Believers who write good books. Did Peter write a good book? He wrote two of them, right? Prominent believers can act in ways contrary to the Gospel. Does everybody see that? Very, very important that we understand that. You might have heard it worded this way, that no matter how how prominent a believer is, he still has feet of clay. Now folks, how can a believer who walked with Christ, who saw Him face to face, who saw the risen Lord, who was had an effective ministry among the circumcised, who wrote great books, who was a pillar at the church at Jerusalem, how, how in the world could He do this? And the answer to that is one word. Fear. Look at what it says here in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 12. But when they came, He began to withdraw and hold Himself aloof. What? Fearing the party of the circumcision. Everybody see that? (coughs) Why Peter feared the party of the circumcision, we aren't given the answer to that. It's not important for what Paul's trying to prove. But folks, I can imagine something like this. Peter had an effective ministry to what group of people? To the circumcised, right? Maybe, 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 did you hear that word? Maybe he felt like that if he continued to eat with the Gentiles, that those certain men from James would go back and spread that he was eating with the unclean Gentile people. And it would hinder his ministry among the circumcised. Don't know. But it was fear. And folks, believers can do things that are contrary to what they believe because they fear. They may fear losing a friend. They may fear losing a job. They may fear what other Christians that they look up to will think about them. 
They may do things out of fear because they really want to be in with the in-group. I want to be part of that group. That group on campus. That group that follows this particular celebrity believer. But it was wrong. Did we hear that? It was wrong. Folks, Paul rebuked Peter not because Paul considered Peter an enemy. He loved him and sought to rescue. Because Peter was failing to live out what he believed and what he taught and what he wrote. And folks, the more influence you have over others, the more careful you need to be in your behavior. Did you hear that statement? And all of us have influence over some group of people. I, as a pastor, have a higher urgency because of my small influence. And folks, we're having people today who are compromising the Gospel. And I don't know their motives or why. We have a Holy Spirit-inspired book here that tells us that Peter did it out of what? Out of fear. I don't know why this is. But folks, if I, and this is an old issue, but if I attend a conference that is held between prominent evangelicals and prominent Catholics, and we sit around a table and we talk about the things we have in common and the things that we have differing, and we're trying to come to some kind of paper agreement where we can agree. That is a gospel issue. Why? Because prominent people lead other people. Folks, if I go to an evangelical Roman Catholic seminar together, and someone who thinks that I have high credibility in their life see me do that, what might they do? Folks, what might they do? Do the very same thing. Today, in broad evangelicalism, I keep hearing about Christians who are in the Roman Catholic Church. I keep hearing Roman Catholicism used in the same phrase of Christianity. Now, there's no doubt that there are a remnant possibly of believing people in the Roman Catholic Church. Can we just all agree about that? 
if you're saying this, every single person who's in the Roman Catholic Church, every single person, not a believer. Well, I would assume that, but there are people who got saved and were not taught to depart. When Billy Graham had his evangelistic services, he had Roman Catholics that he would send people who profess Christ. He would send them back to that church. He would not tell them, oh, now you're saved. You need to separate and come out of that. That's not a church. He would never say that. But folks, I will say this. Roman Catholicism is not Christianity. It's not a church as defined in the New Testament. And when we, when a person who writes great books says, I'm going to approach my Catholic brethren, it's a gospel issue. Everybody see that? Folks, that Roman Catholic system has anathema written over it. They have pronounced anathema over you. That matters nothing. God has pronounced anathema over them. That matters. So folks, we need to be careful about this. Secondly, A prominent believer's influence or status within Christianity or reputation does not assure that every one of his behaviors is proper and correct. We have a tendency today, and I did this in my younger years, we have a tendency to say, well, I found a solid teacher They give me the truth, and then I just follow everything they do blindly. So if they approach the Catholic Church, then I what? I would approach the Catholic Church myself. If I accepted them as a believer, I would accept it. I mean, surely they can't be wrong. Was Peter wrong? He was wrong. And it's easy when we find a man who writes good books, he has influence, and he has a following, and people like him just to swallow every particular behavior they do and say, well, if he does it, he's been blessed by God, it's okay. Was Peter blessed by God? Yes. Yes. But this was not okay. And folks, people who are do things out of fear usually don't really see the ramifications of their actions. Why? Because they're blinded by their fear. But Paul, being an observer from afar, he could see exactly what was happening. Everybody following me? It's very important, whether, it, whether it's me, whether it's you. Lastly, 
Folks, what is preeminent is not the church at Jerusalem. It's not the churches of Judea. It's not the eleven apostles. It's not the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. It's not Peter. It's not Paul. It's the truth of the gospel. That's what's preeminent. That is over all, including any influential or prominent believer in any age. How can you say that? Well, two questions. Was Peter an apostle and was he rebuked? So he can't be Peter lording over us. And folks, Paul himself says, if we or an angel from heaven preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be even Paul is under the rule of the truth of the gospel. Everybody see that? And whether it's you, whether it's me, there's nothing more important. There's nothing more highly valued. There's no more wealth above this wealth. And that is Christ. And all that God has done in Christ through the gospel. So folks, is Paul independent? Is he credible? Was he taught by revelation of Jesus Christ? The answer to that is yes. And all the rest of the churches acknowledge this. The apostles acknowledge this. Even Peter submitted to this. And we need to be careful. In my latter years, I'm more and more convinced that the latter years of a Christian life are more perilous than any other time. Because you want to finish well. Right? You want to finish well. And I pray that by the grace of God, neither you nor our church would ever compromise in doctrine the Gospel of Christ, but not only the doctrine, but the outworking of the doctrine in our behavior and in our lives. And folks, sometimes that might require you to rebuke a dear friend. But prayerfully, that dear friend would submit like Peter did. Not bowing to Paul. Bowing to Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray.